Hey everyone, this is Lynn Bartan, and you are listening to the Apex Hour on KSUU Thunder 91.1. In this show, you get more personal time with the guests who visit Southern Utah University from all over, learning more about their stories and opinions beyond their presentations on stage. We will also give you some new music to listen to and hope to turn you on to some new sounds and new genres. You can find us here every Thursday at 3 p.m. or on the web at seu.edu slash apex. But for now, welcome to this week's show here on Thunder 91.1. Okay, well, welcome to the Apex Hour, everybody. This is so exciting to be here. I have four super awesome people here, and it's summer at SUU. And today, our topic is experiential learning. And we here at SUU are really embracing this concept of high-impact learning, experiential learning. And we actually had a, a conference just a couple of weeks back in Arizona where all the my guests today attended and... And so I thought we'd kind of do a debriefing on that and the things we learned and also just talk about this this topic of experiential learning and, um, you know, what it means to us at SUU and the kinds of things that we do with it. So it's kind of a roundtable discussion today. So the first thing I'd love to do is just kind of go around and let everybody introduce themselves and just say what they do for SUU. Sylvia, do you want to start? Sure. So um, I'm Sylvia Kozlowska, and I teach in the American Language and Culture Center here at SUU, uh, which is an ESL program for international students who are not quite ready with their language proficiency to enter a degree-seeking program. So we kind of step in and help them out with academic language and academic culture. Awesome. And you do so much experiential teaching. I can't wait to get into that. Yes, I'm excited about it. All right, next. Uh, I'm Patrick Clark. I'm the Dean of the School of Integrative and Engaged Learning, and we are the home to uh, many of the the fun and innovative programs at the university, uh, including the EDGE program, uh, which is a a university graduation requirement that promotes uh, experiential learning um, for students. So really excited to be here today, Lynn. Thank you. And also the home of APEX as well. And you are one of the main champions, I think, for experiential learning on campus, kind of the captain of the ship in some ways. Well, early on when the process began um, with uh, our involvement on a formal steering committee to uh, write a new um, academic roadmap for the Division of Academic Affairs, uh, uh, my job was to be part of the subcommittee that wrote a white paper that laid the foundation later for a lot of the work that's on, uh, in place now. So, yeah, from the beginning, I was sort of there, and it's been fun to sort of champion, champion the work of other people who have sort of taken on the mantle and moved forward with it. Yeah, I'm really excited to ask you how, um, and maybe we'll get into this a little later, how it has changed, you know, since the sort of germ stages, you know, the initial stages of trying to get this more prominent on campus to now where it's being embraced on a, on a bigger level. So we'll get into that as well. Anne, welcome. Thanks for inviting me. You're welcome. So my name is Anne Dikuma, and I'm one of the fabulous librarians. Well, I'm not saying I'm fabulous, but the librarians are all fabulous at SEU. (laughs) That's so true. (laughs) And I specifically work on uh, instruction and um, 
with that, I work on the dreaded LM1010 information literacy, but we're working on completely revamping it based on student feedback. Um, and I'm also a supportive role. So I support all these other faculty members that do experiential learning and other things in their classrooms. And your perspective, I think, is going to be interesting because you've been an avid conference goer. You've gone to a few different experiential learning conferences. So I'm sort of curious to hear what your perspective of the, the national scene, because you've probably had a little more exposure with different sessions and the way things are going in other parts of the nation. Yeah, so. absolutely. Cool. Yeah. All right. And one of my favorite people. <laughs> <laughs> and Jeb, if you'd like to introduce yourself to sure. us. Uh, hold on. I'm still writing the check to you. For, <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, my name is Jeb Brown, and I'm the Associate Dean of the School of Integrative and Engaged Learning and the Executive Director of the Experiential Learning Leadership Institute. Um, and um, I also uh, teach a little bit in the theater department and do a study abroad program for them, which study abroad is a type of experiential uh, education, experiential learning that's uh, transformative yeah. for students. So I'm really lucky because I get to work uh directly with students and see the transformation in their lives uh, through experiential education, as well as work at the administrative level to help, to help sort of guide policies and procedures and approaches to experiential uh, learning and education at the university. It seems like most of your instruction has had that experiential element and over a wide, in your teaching and in a wide range of topics and disciplines. And now with the semester or study abroad and, and those kinds of things too, you really get to sort of bring, amass it all together. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, almost all of the academic disciplines have components, uh, be they major or minor, uh, that are experiential in nature. Um, you know, certainly you teach music. I mean, it, it is inherently experiential insofar as you, know, you are doing studio work and you're working with students in, in hands-on experiences. But the concept of experiential education that we're talking about is, is outside the classroom types of experiences, uh, taking that education and finding transferable skills and applying them in ways that are really meaningful to students. I mean, one thing we know about uh, students over the last several years is they really want to understand relevancy of what it is they're doing and why they're doing it and how it's going to um, you know, apply to their lives. That, that relevancy becomes more obvious through experiential education, experiential learning, because they are taking those skills and they are often having to find ways to take skills that they've learned theoretically and apply them in ways that are very different than they had ever imagined. Right. Uh, to projects and opportunities and pardon the, the, the use of the word experiences <laughs> <laughs> that um, are outside the classroom. And it really, for a lot of students, helps crystallize the relevancy of a traditional higher education as well as how you know important experiential education is. Well, that's kind of a great segue to what I wanted to talk about next, which is how do we define experiential learning? We are sort of used to defining it, speaking about it. It's some it's language we're familiar with now. But let's say somebody's listening to the show or let's say there's a faculty member who 
doesn't really know, or even just somebody you're trying to say, hey, this is what I do. How would you uh, define it? Does anybody have any uh, thoughts? I mean, Jeb just kind of gave us a, a nice sort of broad thing, but how would you define experiential learning to somebody who doesn't know? Does anybody have want to well, jump in? <laughs> I'll, I'll make a, a comment on that. You know, it's it's funny that nationally um, there's still a debate about the definition of experiential learning. Oh. There are different forms of experiential learning. For example, there's what we call active learning. There's project-based learning. Um, there's a variety of there's internships. There's a variety of different ways that students um, engage in an experience. But there's one common thread that tends to define when experiential learning is happening, and that is guided reflection. Ah. Um, that's when the learning occurs. So um, when, when people go out and participate in active learning exercises, um, what, what they need to be able to do is step away from the experience in an environment that encourages them to think and ponder and, 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 and analyze what the experience did for them, how it helped them, what they would do differently, um, how it fuels their own imagination moving forward. Um, and that, that's where learning occurs. And so uh, early on, when we were sort of proposing what later became the EDGE program, there was sort of this debate even on campus about, um, about um, what constituted um, experiential learning. And, and, it, and really the, the point that we were trying to, trying to drive forward is that it's longitudinal, uh, it's process-oriented, it's not something that occurs because somebody shows up and does something. Uh, it, it, it is a, there's a developmental process involved, but ultimately in the experience there has to be this ability to reflect and think about what they did and articulate how it helped them grow as an individual, how it helps change their, or not change, but how it helps guide their own thinking about the work that they do and, and how what they did will influence what they will do next. Um, so there's a variety of different ways to look at that, but there's really no universal standard definition mm. that the industry can agree upon. There are different forms of experiential learning, but again, woven throughout this process is this um, this um, notion of reflection, and that's really where the learning takes place. Great. Thank you so much for that. Does anybody have anything else they'd like to add? Well, one of the questions then becomes, so, um, you know, if if the norm nationally can't define it, then, then how do we operationalize it at the university? Right. And we've worked very closely, and uh, Southern Utah University has become what is known as a strategic partner with the National Society of Experiential Education. Uh, and as opposed to trying to provide a one-size-fits-all definition, uh, the National Society of Experiential Education, or NSEE, uh, provides eight principles of best practice. And these eight principles can be applied to a variety of types of experiential education. And if that experiential education includes each of these eight components, then you can be assured that it is going to be richly educational and deeply reflective. And so the work that we do at the university as a whole, in large part, is informed by 
making sure that these best practices are, are utilized. And specifically within SEAL, we often will begin with the eight practices in mind as we develop programs. Uh, Patrick is on the board of directors for NSEE. Uh, NSEE also has um, an academic certification um, through what's called the Experiential Education Academy. And you can graduate from the academy uh, through taking you know, a, a series of required and, and elective courses, just like any graduation. Uh, and these uh, different courses help faculty members better understand how to utilize it. And uh, we have uh, at least three faculty members for the EEA, so Experiential Education Academy faculty members in myself um, and Lani Niatu and uh, Todd Peterson, um, Dr. Todd Peterson, um, teach in this academy. And so we have an opportunity to travel uh, to some of these workshops and and teach all colleagues from around the country these, these courses. Cool. Um, this helps provide a standard of practice that elevates the quality uh, regardless of whether or not you are trying to do internships or service learning or um, you know, study abroad or you're looking at you know, richly active learning in the K-12 system or, or things like that. Right. If you can achieve these standards and apply these principles, you can be assured of the quality of the learning. Right. Okay. I have a question about that. But, Anne, did I see you do a celebratory dance because you're yes. now certified? <laughs> yep. I finished my last class um, when we were in Flagstaff. Congratulations. And it was on reflection, which is my favorite topic. And it was taught by Dr. Todd Peterson, as a matter of fact. Well, yeah. and listeners of the show will also recognize um, Dr. Todd Peterson because he was actually on the podcast a few weeks ago talking about his new book. So that's the same guy we're talking about. He gets around. <laughs> well, I'd love to get more into the, the, the reflection point in, in one of our next little segments here. Um, I did want to just make sure that anybody listening can get a hold of those eight be best practices. Where's the easiest way to find those? Um, I'm the librarian. So oh, yes. Let right. me tell you. <laughs> so anyway, use Google and put in NSEE and eight principles. Then you should find it. It'll, Perfect. It'll get you to the page. I really love that Sorry. because I do think sometimes there's terminology confusion that can arise. And so rather than thinking of it, oh, experiential learning is all these words, you know, rather the, the set of practices as being the guiding principles, I think is great. So thanks for that. All of that. All right. It's time for a little bit of music. And I've got a couple songs for you. Um, this first song is Il et El. And it's by it's by Brock, but also a, a, a great African singer, Miriam Makemba, who I featured on the show before, is um, featured on this track. So you are listening to the Apex Hour. This is KSUU Thunder 91.1. <laughs> Jesus, we 
de la vie et ta couture qui fait tomber les masques, les masques, les armures, il est elle. Ensemble, ça dure, y'a cassure, y'a beaucoup de femmes seules, car y'a beaucoup moins de cassure. Nommez va, beaucoup de révèle des choses dures, révèle des fissures, des faits qui relèvent de la pure. Des aspects sombres de l'humaine nature, quand la passion l'emporte sur la raison, faute de dialogue, dialogue, communication, il est elle. Finisse ton mur, nommez va. Beaucoup de la vie et ta couture, et par en rime, parfois avec être immature, qui lors de cœur, elle en arrive à négliger leur progéniture. Beaucoup d'art a une importance réelle Révèle que il rime avec un fidèle Et coupable de pulpécho originel So we're back here at the Apex Hour, and that song was called Il et El, and the artist is Brock, but it features Miriam Makeba, uh, a really wonderful um, African singer, and you can definitely check both of those artists out. This is the Apex Hour. You're listening to KSUU Thunder 91.1, and we're back with kind of a roundtable of people who love and believe in and are passionate about experiential learning, which we are really embracing here at SUU and just really reaping the benefits uh, in, in seeing what happens with our students when we embrace um, these this, this way, um, this model. So I'd like to kind of get back to it and talk about the, the teaching and talk about how experiential learning plays out on a practical level. And so I'm wondering if maybe we could start with Sylvia, if you could share just some of your either tactics or feelings or kind of ways that you really uh, approach it and bring it into your teaching. Sure. Um, first of all, I have seen a huge transformation in, in our students once they started participating in experiential learning. So about three years ago, no, actually more like two years ago, we piloted our new curriculum in our ESL program. In order to make it more experiential, we worked on it for some time and and uh, kind of included some experiential elements in a way so that three of our six proficiency levels are now completely project-based. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that we don't do experiential learning in our task-based levels. That just means those levels that are project-based give students the full term, which in our case is seven weeks, to work on a project of their choice. And so I feel very fortunate because I get to teach the introductory project-based level for students who have maybe never, ever had any kind of experiential learning in their life. And so, you know, they're coming to us and keep in mind, these are international students. Most of them are 17 to 20 years old uh, from a variety of countries and, and educational systems and backgrounds. And so, you know, there, there can be at first a little bit of kind of opposition because they, they are shocked. Where are the worksheets? Where is the grammar? Where is the pronunciation? Where is, you know? You find that generally students coming from abroad expect a little more traditional. Yes. Ah. And, um, 
something Dr. Todd Peterson brought to, to my mind a couple weeks ago. He said, you know, be careful using this word traditional because that's essentially what we're doing now is we're going, trying to get back to more traditional way of learning, right. um, being experiential. But so, um, yeah, but I do find that the students coming from those more conventional systems of teaching uh, language, um, you know, they need more structure. And sometimes you give them a lot of choice and they don't know what to do with it. Right. And so because our terms are so short, we have a kind of limited opportunity to sell them on the idea in the first week and then still hope they get five weeks to work on a project. Right. Nonetheless, I, like I said earlier, it's, it's been um, really amazing to see some of the same students coming through our program, you know, two, three terms later. So after they've had at least one project-based class, come to a task class and still use some of those transferable skills without being told right. to use them. Right. And, you know, maybe they don't even think about it a lot of times because it's, it's I like to say we're tricking them into learning. Right. <laughs> Sometimes they don't really realize what it is that they're gaining. Mm -hmm. And then seeing them use it in consecutive levels is uh, really exciting. You know, I'm not saying this happens 100% of the time, but when it does... I know that it is because of experiential learning. I know it's because of those project classes. And when you design them, what I mean, what kinds of things do you go to the the eight practices that we were talking about, or can you give us some examples of a particularly successful projects or or practices that you found? Yes, I. What I can tell you is we we have our own set of student learning outcomes, of course. Um, and so we have to make sure that we're meeting them. But in the meantime, as we're meeting them, the, the way we designed our project-based courses is so that each assignment is focused on the project. Mm -hmm. So to give you an example, a student will come in to this project-based class and get a list of kind of guiding questions to uh -huh. help them think of a topic on their own or arrive at a topic or maybe expose them to something interesting that might stimulate kind of self-inquiry or curiosity in them. So, for example, saying, what have you always wanted to know more about but never had a chance to do it? Or what have you um, tried and failed and would like to try again? Right. So, for example, a topic, one of my favorite projects ever was a student who created um, basically a way to enhance your, your wireless internet signal in your dorm. Oh, that's <laughs> so awesome. So it was an immediate kind of problem solver student who had an issue in his dorm. And so he chose this for his project. And for five weeks, he worked on it, collecting primary, secondary research, interviewing people on and off campus, going out into the local community, finding Radio Shack and so on and so forth. And again, keep in mind, these are in many cases, beginner language proficiency students. So it takes, you know, they're building confidence. They're learning how to approach a stranger in a, in a foreign language and, and, and many other um, metacognitive kind of skills. That's great. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah, that's awesome. That's wonderful. I'm super excited, so I have to stop talking because no. I could go on forever. <laughs> that's wonderful. I think it's great. And I love that you touched on that concept of that we're really actually getting back to sort of original ways of learning, you know, and that that's kind of, yeah, we're actually getting back to traditional learning in that way by doing that. Does anybody else have any teaching experiences or, or tactics or advice for teaching or things that you use that you'd like to share? Well, um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, I, I run a study abroad 
program. And I mean, I think at first blush, people would assume that it's just inherently experiential. And that's true. But that doesn't mean that it's inherently inherently experiential learning. Right. Um, so we have built into the the process not only sort of traditional means of reflection, you know, uh, consider what you did and write about it. Right. Uh, but we have on-site daily uh, reflection activities that we do while we're traveling. Uh, and every morning we meet and, and every morning we... Uh, through sort of some, I don't know that the students are fully aware that, that I'm guiding through some different types of uh, thought, uh, but uh, prompt them with some questions. So, you know, say, so, okay, so last night, so these are, these are my theater students. So, you know, so, so last night we went to Shakespeare's Globe and, and you experienced this. Um, how is it different than, you know, when you go to, a, a more modern theater experience, and then what do those differences tell us? And 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 in f what do they tell us about the experience of being in the theater? And what do they tell us about how we process what it is that we're seeing? And and how does it change how we approach and think about what it is we're seeing and learning? And and so these 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 guided reflections every morning um, become sort of the linchpin. Because then that day, as we go out and are experiencing the new things for that day, right. they are processing that, huh, I'm going to, tomorrow, I'm going to be doing some reflection on this. And, and, and we're going to be getting some pointed questions about, you know, not only what we've been experiencing, but what are we learning from that experience. <clears throat> Next morning, have the reflection. And then that day, now they have two days worth of reflection, helping to inform that as they experience, they're beginning to process the learning part that comes with it. And so, you know, one of the, the ideas of experiential education is that it really is like a, a, a spiral, Yeah. you know, that every time you do it, you should be able to the next time do it even better and, and gain more from the process. It's, you know, we draw it sometimes and it looks like a circle. But really, it should be spiraling up. Oh, I like that. And so we get an opportunity to see that day after day after day on these uh, study abroads. Um, and so it doesn't just become something they're doing. Uh, they really are processing what they're doing in um, a way that really informs learning. Uh-huh. Cool. Well, that gets into the reflection component, which I'd love to talk more about. And Anne, I know that's something you're really passionate about. And so can you share, you know, why why the reflection component means so much to you and what it means to you? And just talk about that because I know it's something you like. Yeah, I like it a lot. And that um, there's a quote from John Dewey. I don't know He's, he was a philosopher, but also an educator. And he says, we do not learn from experience. We learn from reflecting on experience. Oh. So just it. having an experience is not enough, right? You need to really think about what did this mean? What did I learn? How would I do it differently? Without that reflection, it's kind of, I mean, it's still useful, but it, reflection just puts it on. It's yeah, I love that. Yeah. And, and so how, did that just always jump out at you as the key piece or is that something that you 
saw the results of many times? I mean, or did you just kind of initially connect with that? Like, oh, this, this really makes sense to me. Yeah, I think as a life practice, reflection is really, really useful. So if you just kind of float along and never think about anything, you cannot improve, you can't really learn. So it, that always has made sense to me. So ad adapting it or including it in an educational experience made so much sense. Now, sometimes you read about something and you're like, oh, this makes so much sense. I'm going to try this with my students. And it really, really works. Yeah. So the challenge is, though, that I found is um, you can't just tell students to reflect. Mm -hmm. Right. It's difficult. You know, it's, it requires thought, time, introspection. And those are all skills we need to teach students and guide them along. What is a good reflection? What is a bad reflection? And so on. So for the teachers listening, and we may have, you know, not just college teachers, but uh, teachers of all different age groups listening, do, do any of you have any advice? Maybe they're thinking, wow, you know, I'd really like to bring this reflection component into, into my classroom, into my learning environments. Do, does anybody have any advice for how to get going with that? Well, just, just a, a quick comment, and then I'll, I'll let some of the faculty members talk a little bit more about it, but um, you know the, the the prompts that are used to help, and I use the term from the beginning, guided reflection. Right? It's you just don't say go reflect on it. Well, what is reflection, and what is effective reflection, and what kind of prompts elicit the kinds of responses and thinking that we want students to engage in? So there's a carefully there's a careful design process about how you guide that reflection. Um, and, and so in our, uh, in our curriculum that we use in, for example, the EDGE program, you know, the, the, the questions that help guide that for students um, have been well-crafted and designed to help students do deeper level thinking about the process. But one thing we haven't talked about very much is this idea of intentionality. Mm. So we talk a lot about reflection, but reflection is the, is, it comes after the experience, but before the experience is the idea of thinking about it before you actually do it. Um, and one thing that we, that is part of our, our brand, um, at SUU relative to experiential learning is we, we, inc we, uh, challenge students to articulate as much as they can about what it is they're going to do before they do it, um, in, in a way that, that sets up the experience to be deeper, richer, more meaningful. Uh, for the student, but then gives them a chance because you can't really reflect until you think about, well, what were your expectations before you did the thing and you did the thing and now what did you, you learn? So intentionality is just as important and vital in this process as I think reflection is. And that's, and a lot of times that's where students struggle um, because because of their lack of experience mm -hmm. with things, they're not quite sure how to think about what it is they're going to do. They just want to do it so they can get right. the experience. But when you're, when someone is, um, uh, is asked to, to do more work before they actually do something, it makes the experience of doing it that much richer and deeper for the students. So that, that's, a, that's a really important thing to keep in mind um, is this idea of intentionality. Yeah, intentionality before then the experience happens and then the reflection. I think that's a really clean, easy way to sort of for new people to, to really kind of embrace that. That's great. And, and, and that's why it's longitudinal, right? Mm -hmm. It's not something you can do 
quickly. Right. And it's developmental and longitudinal. And that, that's one of the pieces that has to be understood. Right. And I think that Patrick said that that's sometimes hard for students. I would say that that's sometimes very hard for faculty yeah. members. Right. Because faculty members, if you're going to let your students' experiential learning be authentic, then that means that they need to make some of the decisions, if not many or most of the decisions. They need to come up with the ideas for what they want to do, why they want to do it, how they're going to do it, what they hope to learn from it, um, you know, the processes. I mean, even things like the risk management, things like the student, the international student who worked on Wi-Fi improvement for his dormitory. Part of what made that successful was I imagine that it was something that he or she wanted to do and was something that they got excited about. But if they had come to class and said, okay, your project this semester students is you're all going to go and examine the Wi-Fi strength of your dormitory rooms. And many students would have never connected with that because that wasn't their thing. Um, and so that uh, is hard for yeah. faculty members to say, you know, they often, they'll often say to us, well, what do I tell them to do? See, um, oftentimes you don't tell them to do anything. Right. You let them tell you. But and it can scary. be very freeing. And I think a lot of people don't realize that when they get started with it, you know, that it can be very freeing as well. Like, I think sometimes faculty members or maybe just me, you know, fall into the trap of uh, I have to have everything all solved for them. I have to figure everything out so that everything works, you know, and I think I think it's a, a nice message to tell people that, no, if you if you go into some of these pro processes and some of these practices, you don't have to have everything figured out. I mean, you you actually you want them to be figured. And I think that can be actually freeing if you can get your brain around it. Sure. So. Well, it can be because then you also have to ask the question, what happens when they fail? Right. They come up with this plan. They try and go ahead and execute it. It right. doesn't work. Exactly. Well, if you have embraced the idea that it's the learning associated with the experience, not the experience, then again, that's liberating because the project itself cannot turn out the way they had hoped to at all. I mean, can fail. Right. And yet the learning associated with that experience can be incredibly rich. And, you know, isn't that life? Yeah. Don't we learn a lot more sometimes from our failures and our successes? Because it forces reflection as opposed to just celebration yeah. and back padding. It forces us, oh, what went wrong? And how we don't like failure. So we say, how will I make sure this doesn't happen to me again? Which is essentially uh, a, a reflection. And so uh, I, I think that's part of the authenticity of experiential learning is the fact that we in education aren't real comfortable with the idea of failure equals success. Yeah. And maybe we should be a yeah. little bit more. Exactly. And you had something you wanted to add? Well, some things that um, Patrick mentioned all kind of held back to the eight principles we were talking about earlier. So for a good experience, there has to be that intention um, from the student, but also from the faculty member to plan it. Um, and also you may not lay out what the project projects are going to be, but you have to provide that foundation, right, right. before you set your students loose. Um, so that's really important. An authentic experience. I know Sylvia 
sends her students um, to the ice cream shop where they have to order, which is petrifying when you don't speak the language. Right. Like, if I went to China, I probably couldn't order ice cream to save my life. <laughs> uh, that reflection piece we already talked about, but also orientation and training related to the experience. And this is more internship related, I imagine. And then monitoring, like how is the activity, how is the experience going, how yeah. can we improve it? And then something we haven't talked about yet today is assessment and evaluation, right. which we have to kind of see how how did things turn out. We had this plan, what happened? And um, and then in the end, talking about celebration, there has to be that's the eighth principle, acknowledgement. So celebrate with the student that this activity has been completed, and you get a nice certificate or something showing that you completed it. So again, those eight principles, so the eight best practices can be a great model. Well, let me get another song and going, and then let's come back and talk about this trip that we just took where we all got a chance to really get exposed to some great, great sessions and learn even more. And that was at our LE conference um, that was at the end of June in Flagstaff, Arizona. But in the meantime, I've got a song by Stevie Wolf, and it's Eve's Climb Blue, and this is the Apex Hour on KSUU Thunder 91.1. Could you ever know? Me at all ooh, 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 ooh. Could you ever know Me at all I don't think That I'll be Even though Right now Seems like All these ends In tears and twisted Mouths
Welcome back, everyone. That was Eve Climb Blue by Stevie Wolf. And this is Lynn Vartan, and you're listening to the Apex Hour. Today, our topic is experiential learning. And one of the things that inspired that was that we all just came back from a really amazing conference, um, which we nicknamed, well, because of the acronym, the Ellie Conference, which was in Flagstaff, Arizona. So Jeb, would you mind just kind of giving us a overview of what LE is, what it stands for, what is this conference? Sure. So the uh, LE stands for the Experiential Learning Leadership Institute. It's an organization within Southern Utah, Utah University uh, that promotes experiential learning uh, nationwide. Uh, it is has sort of multiple facets to it, one of which is this annual conference that we do for educators in higher education, K-12, and from the nonprofit world. Oh, right. uh, we have attendees come from all over uh, the United States and Canada. Um, we also have what we call a uh, leadership retreat where, um, say I work at an institution and three or four of my colleagues and I have a great idea as to something we want to launch at our school but we just haven't figured it all out yet. You know, we haven't walked through the process. And there's never time to do that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So we have this retreat where uh, schools from around uh, North America write applications to Ellie and say, here is the team we've put together. Here's what we want to do. Can we attend your retreat? And then Ellie brings uh, consultants uh, from around the country who are uh, have particular expertise in doing this type of work. And we go to uh, a place outside of Moab that's very, very isolated. And very beautiful. <laughs> and very beautiful. <laughs> and uh, we walk the teams through sort of a process for spending a few days focused and then we set them loose and the teams work and and report to the consultants and develop these projects and then they come back because reflection is important and assessment is report is important then they come back to our annual conference and do sessions and report on their progress Great. Um, we also do consulting work uh, we get calls all the time from around the country um, and around the world even uh, asking for guidance in different aspects of experiential learning. Southern Utah University is really on sort of the, the you know, front edge of this. We're one of the very That's first, so cool. if, if not the first university 
to have a graduation requirement in experiential education where the students authored the projects yeah. as opposed to saying everybody who comes to our school is going to graduate. They're going to all do service learning or they're going to all do study abroad or, you know, we really laid it out and we provided a shepherding experience where the students created it and worked on it through their time at school. And so people call us all the time. And so we provide uh, consulting both here at SUU and uh, on other campuses and then uh, connecting with people through the Leadership Institute and the conference and things like that. We've also been developing some things specifically for K-12 uh, so that we can better partner uh, with them. And our annual conference, we just had our uh, fourth Annual conference is the Fourth. one yeah, in, I was curious in Arizona. Yeah, uh, next year will be our fifth anniversary, which is which is exciting for us. Uh, we grow every year and getting bigger and bigger. And um, next year, for anybody interested, we will be hosting it here in Cedar City. We will. We next year we'll be focusing on the national parks of Southern Utah. So one of the things we try and do is put our money where our mouth is. So as opposed to a conference where you go and spend the entire time in session after session after session, we do recognize the value of, of not traditional, but conventional classroom type of learning. Right. And so our conference is sort of a hybrid. There are regular sessions where we, we learn from each other and people submit proposals and do best practices and prevent, present their research. But then we go out. We take the conference out right. and we do excursions. Uh, we have done everything from, I mean, going through the national parks to poetry writing to bird watching to geology to uh, service-oriented things. We, we just take the conference participants and and – they do um, these experiences and get an opportunity to reflect on. And we try and provide such a rich array that there can be some authenticity because we let them choose which of these excursions do you want to participate in and and how will you utilize this excursion uh, to help you learn from the conference. And so next year we're going to, we hope to include Bryce Canyon, Zion, we're we're talking about Capitol Reef, uh, Brian. Uh, up, you know, Brian had uh, lots of different things. I mean, SUU is the University of the Parks, and that's so, so that's cool. going to be our focus next year. It's a great model for a conference. Um, and Sylvia, you presented at the conference. Can you tell us a little bit about your session? It was I was there. It was a really good one. Thanks. I, I can. I before I do that though, I just want to kind of. Echo what you said, Lynn. It, it is a great model for a conference. And I haven't, ha- I haven't had a lot of conference experience. You know, I can't say I've been to more than maybe 12 conferences ever, but this is by far my favorite because it's really kind of an immersion experience because I, I connect with people because I'm at their presentations. Uh, I connect with people during meals. I connect with people during these excursions. And I love that, or at least the excursions I went on had an element of reflection embedded in them to really kind of solidify the cycle of experiential learning. So that was really cool. Uh, my presentation was um, basically on how cultural competence and experiential learning go hand in hand and how we can enhance one with the other and vice versa. Uh, one thing that has been brought up earlier is this idea of reflection, right? We, we all know it's important, but I, I would like to push more the idea of preflection as well, you know, this idea of 
Um, are we assuming students want an experience, you know, in experiential <laughs> learning? And um, uh, what can we do to, to help them on that journey of openness and curiosity and kind of basically elements of preflection or I don't know what to call it. It's I a little bit about that, like that intentionality yes, that Patrick was exactly. talking about, you know, going in with uh, thinking about what are you going to try to get out of this? Yes. And what, what's your, what are you trying to get to? Yeah. And just being aware of your own expectations of the experience and then translating those to your instructor or professor you know, can be a really instrumental tool in looping the reflection with the next one and mm -hmm. the reflection and the reflection. I, I like this idea. This is another thing Dr. Peterson talked about at the NSEE workshop of reflection was, you know, it, it should be revisited um, consistently in, and, and the term he used was looping and that really stuck with me. And like the spiral concept yes. that Jen was talking about too. Yeah. Exactly. It ties, ties back to that. But I do strongly feel that, that reflection or actually what I want to say is that failure is instructional. Mm. Um, and, and we know that from life. We don't have to, you know, have experiential learning teach us that. We know that it's instructional. Right. Um, and so that's something I incorporated into my into my presentation. But the focus was mostly on cultural competence and how experiential learning can help us enhance cultural competence, which is so very important, always has been, but especially now more than ever with, you know, efforts to internationalize the campus and efforts to globalize the curriculum. And just to get along, right? Yeah, right. So, so that was kind of what, what I talked about at the conference. Great. Mm -hmm. Well, Anne, as a conference participant, you probably got to see a lot of different sessions. Do you have any memories or things you'd like to share? Uh, one really cool one um, was by a guy named Dean from the University of Utah. Oh, yeah. I heard uh, about from, that from the one. Binion Center at the University yes, of Utah. Yes, that's right. And he... Um, did kind of a group exercise with us to get a shared experience as a group. We read something together and then talked about what we saw in the piece. And he does this a lot with um, his student groups. And it was really fun to be a part of that. I heard so many good things about that session. I missed that one, but I heard several people really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was super intense. And he has all these different readings on different topics that then elicit good, really good and discussion. And can you tell me what made that so noticeable to you or s stand out so much? Was it the way he guided it or was it the reading him itself or a combination? It was really both. I mean, the, but I think mostly how he led it, just observing how he's just a very skilled person. He does this all the time with many different groups, how he could kind of let things flow, but then pull people back in. It's an art, so I, I really watched what he was doing. It was fascinating. And he also has this thing that I never heard about. It's called wait. It's why am I talking? So. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I love that. Because some people just go, yabbity, yabbity, yabbity. But he says, okay, you know, I want you to be aware of this wait thing. So everybody gets a word in. And, yeah, it was just really well done. I love that. So if you ever get a chance to see him in action. And what was his name one more time? Dan? Dean. Dean. He, he's the executive director of the Benyon Center. Uh, okay. Uh, which is uh, one of the nation's premier uh, service learning uh, community engagement centers. Um, 
and they do in, incredible work there. Great. Um, and are a national model. Um, and uh, all the community engagement centers and service learning centers and all the higher education institutions in Utah uh, work together mm-hmm. uh, and, and partner on a lot of projects and certainly partner on best practices so that, um, you know, as a state, we really do um, a great job with service learning and, and yeah. community engagement. Well, this has just been so fascinating. We're actually already almost out of time. But before we go, I didn't even have time to play my third song, which is great. The conversation was flowing so nicely. Um, I'd like to do my favorite little quick thing, which is um, just kind of go around the table and say something that's making you happy or turning you on this week. And it can be a song or a TV show or a book or really anything. It's just kind of something that inspires other people and we and and it could be anything could be like my the bird I saw in my backyard or if there's something that is just kind of uh, you're really jazzed about this week so Sylvia do you have something what's turning you on this how much time do we have (laughs) (laughs) okay I'm gonna keep it short Um, I do feel inspired by birds in my backyard every day (laughs) but what's really cool for me this week is I get to finish my uh, Damascus steel knife that I've been making whoa and it's been a really long process I have I don't know how many hours in it but the the last kind of session should happen today or tomorrow you're making a knife yes and it's Damascus steel so it's the strongest possible steel you could ever make so yeah I started from scratch you know and it's it's basically a project I guess (laughs) it's it's really neat and in the process meeting some amazing people so that's that's always exciting well that's wonderful Mm -hmm. thanks for sharing Patrick how about you what's making you happy this week Uh, July mornings on campus at SUU so when the mom monsoons kind of kick in and uh, things freshen up uh just that cool warm warm cool however you want to say it uh walk across campus in the morning coming to work uh just no better place than the SU campus on a summer morning so that's got me jazzed this beautiful week. <laughs> thank you and how about you okay i don't watch tv but i recently found james gordon's carpool karaoke <laughs> sessions online yes. and they're so much fun i mean it just shows that music bridges so many cultures yes. and he can just interact with these very famous people i guess he's pretty famous himself now but at such a personal level all with music it's amazing to watch the energy and the happiness in those videos is so cool Oh, thank you. That's awesome. Those are great. I love them. Jeb, how about you? Oh, well, I had an awesome experience yesterday. So um, one of the one of the actresses at Utah Shakespeare Festival is somebody that um, I went to college with and oh. uh, have, have done some work with. And two of our um, friends from college who, who are also both incredible artists uh, they wanted to come down and see Colleen perform in The Foreigner. And I got a text and saying, hey, we're all going to meet at the French spot. We'd love to see you. And so the four of us got together and it was just, I mean, we were practically in tears. Um, and for several of us, we hadn't seen each other in, you know, 25 or more years. And we were chuckling. It was like, you know, I haven't seen you in person, but yet I know the name of your dog. And I know what you had for dinner yesterday because of social media context. But it um, it just wasn't the same thing as to be able to hug them. And I've just been on cloud nine. 
oh, ever since. So that's it was really just beautiful. Cool. Well, yeah. thank you for yeah. sharing. My thing that's making me happy or turned me on this week is I started a new book that I heard about on a podcast, which is about a very old topic. And it's not nearly as like warm and fuzzy as everything that everybody's mentioned, but it's the Jeffrey Tubin book called American Heiress, which is um, the Patty Hearst story, mm-hmm. which I didn't really know much about. I don't really know that story very well. And I mean, it reads like a novel. I mean, and his writing is so great. And um, I, I heard him on the podcast, Here's the Thing, which which I really love, which is Alec Baldwin's interview podcast. Um, and I just thought I'd pick up that book and check it out. And it is really something. So I'd like to thank my panel for being here today. Thank you guys so much for sharing about experiential learning in the conference and for being on the show. Thanks for coming in. Well, thanks for having us. All right. We're signing off for the Apex Hour here on KSU Youth under 91.1. Have a great week, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the Apex Hour here on KSU Youth under 91.1. Come find us again next Thursday at 3 p.m. for more conversations with the visiting guests at Southern Utah University and new music to discover for your next playlist. And in the meantime, we would love to see you at our events on campus. To find out more, check out suu.edu apex. Until next week, this is Lynn Vartan saying goodbye from the Apex Hour here on Thunder 91.1.